0: Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers and I know we've done a lot of reporting on the conflict in Gaza, but today we're going to hear from an Aussie who's just been there on what life is really like on the ground.
1: That level of severity and intensity and sheer number of children in that state was something I've just not seen before. That's
0: James Elder, who went in with UNICEF during their recent humanitarian mission while the ceasefire was on. He's got some incredible stories to share with us about what everyday life is like and how many kids still have hope, even in some of the most unimaginable circumstances. That is in the second half of the episode. So a warning, some of the details might be difficult for some of our listeners. Before we get into that, though, let's hear today's headlines with Sasha Barbagat. It is Monday the 18th of December.
2: Thanks, Katrina. Hi, everyone. Authorities in Queensland are warning of a life-threatening event as a major flooding incident grips the far north of the state.
1: It's expected to see flooding that exceeds the 1977 flood level Uh, There are significant concerns across a range of communities across the far north.
2: Queensland's new Premier Stephen Miles there speaking yesterday afternoon. Now alerts have been issued and are still current for major flooding on the Daintree, Mossman, Barron, Herbert, Johnston, Mulgrave, Russell, Tully and Murray rivers. With heavy rain expected to keep falling today and into tomorrow. Now, some areas copped more than 400 mils of rain in just six hours yesterday, on top of more than half a metre in the previous 24 hours. Residents in Cairns have been evacuated as parts of the city go underwater. Now, Katrina, this part is astounding. The images coming out of the airport at Cairns, which is expected to be closed for a second day today, but planes have even gone underwater and there's images of them online. It's absolutely insane.
0: Yeah, which at a time when they were hoping for a bump in tourism is devastating for everyone in that area. And of course, you know, people wanting to travel in and out of that area for Christmas too. But um the irony with all that water everywhere is that residents around Cairns have said that they could be at risk of running out of drinking water within hours today. And that's because the intake uh, pipes at water treatment plants are blocked with debris from all this flooding. And they can't get in there to clear them out at this stage. So, yeah, residents have been told to preserve water as much as possible so that uh, they don't run out of supplies. This is, of course, all off the back of Cyclone Jasper, which made landfall last week. And the Bureau says there's a moderate risk it could even redevelop this weekend.
2: And that's a worrying factor as well. Of course, it's not a guarantee. The Bureau is just kind of looking ahead and saying this is a possibility rather than a certainty. But you know, with these events. Thankfully, so far, everyone is safe. Um, But the SES has been called out to over 50 flood rescues, prompting a warning from emergency services who have described the situation as incredibly dangerous. Of course, if it's flooded, forget it. That's the catch cry. Do not go near flooding. Do not try and drive through those waters. uh, And hopefully we'll get through this without any injuries or deaths. Pope
0: Francis has weighed in on the conflict in Gaza, condemning the killing of two Christian women. These women were sheltering at a Gaza church and were shot by an Israel Defense Forces sniper. Seven others were also killed.
2: They were killed
0: and other people were wounded
2: while they were going to the bathroom.
0: Yes, yeah, so Pope Francis went on further to say, this is war and it is terrorism. Israel says the incident is under review. It's the second time in less than a month that the Pope has used the word terrorism while speaking of events in Gaza.
2: Yes, and meanwhile, France's foreign minister, Catherine Colonna, has arrived in Israel and is calling for an immediate and durable truce, adding to international calls there for some sort of ceasefire. And in some good news, the Karem Shalom border crossing between Israel and Gaza opened yesterday for the first time for aid trucks since the outbreak of the war. Up until now, Katrina Aid was only getting through the Rafa crossing, Gaza's border with Egypt. 2023 has the inauspicious title of being the
0: deadliest on Australia's roads in more than five years as governments right across the country are accused of not doing enough. 1,253 people have been killed since January. I just, you know, you imagine that number of people assembled all together and that gives you a grim picture of what that is really like. So that is up 6% on last year. South Australia has seen a 61% jump. In Victoria, it was 14.5%. The Australian Automobile Association is calling for more transparency around data of road deaths. They say federal, state and territory governments have access to information that could help explain what's behind the increase. They're saying it could be things like the quality of Australian roads, the causes of crashes and law enforcement patterns.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we're actually digging deeper into this in today's extra episode of The Briefing. We're going to discuss the statistics and what we're seeing, but also be hearing from a woman uh, who's been directly affected by road trauma after her son was killed. So that episode will be out later today. Today is the last day you can send your parcels by standard delivery and guarantee it arrives by Christmas. Now, Australia Post does warn us every year of the cut-off and that's only becoming more necessary as more and more of us either buy our gifts online or send them to loved ones. And if you have heard this and you're in a panic... Please don't worry, express shipping is still available with a promise it'll arrive by the 24th if you send it by Thursday. So that's the 21st. Katrina, are you on top of all your postage needs for Christmas? Oh, I have been buying all my
0: gifts online and that is because I am not on top of any of my shopping. I've just been
2: doing it <laughs> at
0: the last possible minute. So I am in that category of being slugged a lot extra for express shipping. So somebody at Australia Post is hopefully benefiting from my laziness and inability to get organised. Let's hope so. And a Sydney man has taken out the Microsoft Excel World Championship. Yes, there is such a thing for a third year running. An eSport competition for this pesky spreadsheet app really does exist. And Andrew, the Annihilator, Nye, has done us proud at the event in Las Vegas, which was streamed and televised live still very intense. Um, This was a really intense case There are a lot of different levels. You can do a lot of different things. Yeah, I reckon this would be intense because competitors are asked to solve problems using Excel, things like maths, financial modelling, and even board and card games. Sasha, I reckon this sounds like
2: my worst nightmare come true. This sounds like an anxiety (laughs) dream. I hate Excel. I actively avoid using it at every opportunity. Um, But Mr. Nye, he's an actuary at home in Australia. Uh, So his prize, right? So maybe we should get into this, Katrina. Four and a half grand Australian in prize money. He got a trophy and a wrestling style champion's belt. Now, I wouldn't mind taking one of those home.
0: See, I love that the nerdiest competition ever includes, as its prize, (laughs) a wrestling champion's belt. That is just, (laughs) it's just a beautiful thing. I'm going to look this up on YouTube now.
2: Yeah. And just quickly, we have to um, give World's Best Pun Award to Microsoft, which congratulated Mr. Nye on his win by posting on Instagram, you didn't just succeed, you excelled. So... Well done, Microsoft.
0: Bravo. (laughs) All right, Sasha, thank you for that. We are about to hear from an Aussie now on what life is really like on the ground in Gaza. Now let's get into our briefing with an Aussie who's recently been on the ground in Gaza. James Elder works with UNICEF. He's worked in conflict areas for 20 years now, including recently in Ukraine. But he says what's happening in Gaza now is very different. James, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. So you've worked in the humanitarian space for, for more than 20 years now. You've seen things that most of us can't even imagine, but tell us what you have seen in Gaza.
1: It's a dark one, Katrina, um, to be honest. I, I literally went in there expecting um, to see the, the worst, and, and it was worse than I imagined, and it and it gets worse every day, hard as that is to conjure. So, Certainly I'd not seen the wounds of war as severe as this to see hospitals that were literal war zones, to see dozens of children, children, you know, with wounds of war, which wounds of war are not a single thing for a child when a mortar goes through their home. It's it's shrapnel, which is devastating. Shrapnel designed to rip through concrete much less a child's body, it's horrendous burns, and it's broken bones. And in hospitals, they were struggling so much, both because so many have been damaged, but also because just the sheer number of injured people that, you know, boys and girls in in waiting rooms with those wounds, in in car parks. So that level of severity and intensity and sheer number of children uh, in that state was something I've, I've just not seen before.
0: What was your job there? What were you doing? And when did you leave?
1: So I'm a UNICEF spokesperson, so in a role like that, my job really was to bear witness. You know, in, in many different scenarios, it might be to go in and to speak to what UNICEF's doing, always to share the situation of children. There I found it was much more literally just to speak to as many families, as many children, as many health workers I could, as I could, and try and get their stories out, try and make sure they felt they were being heard. And it became clear to me very quickly what I was seeing was, very indiscriminate attacks, disproportionate numbers of children being killed. When UNICEF calls it a war on children, we don't do that lightly. We do that because just over 40% of all casualties are children. That's double you would see in most other conflicts. That's because of the indiscriminate nature of the bombing. That's because U.S. authorities talking about them being dumb bombs, uh, anything other than precision. Um, so my job was to bear witness and to try and tell the stories of those who simply don't have a voice uh, but are, are quite literally screaming for help.
0: And what period of time were you there, James?
1: Uh, I got there just a day or so before the humanitarian pause began and then I was there for four or five days after that ended when all hell broke loose when yet another promise that we were told that the south would not possibly endure the same ferocious bombardments as hit the north and that I you know I I bore witness to that that was absolutely not the case every bit of severe colleagues who were in the north and the south said that the south was enduring very similar levels of um, bombardment to the worst days in the north, remembering that the south had now a million more people in it because those people had been displaced, forced from the north, told they'd be safe in the south that's another dangerous narrative that that is sadly very very untrue the idea that there can be safe places
0: yeah absolutely and for those of us in australia who've never been to gaza describe for us why it is that it is so particularly unsafe for children is it the case that there are it is just a younger demographic than other places
1: Half the population is children, that's no doubt. That also speaks to the immense potential of a place. If you talk to an economist about if those children are educated and given the right skills, then, you know, as we all know, a young population is the envy of ageing places. But why they are so desperately unsafe there is simply both the level of bombardment and the complete disregard for any humanitarian services. So I guess you go back a step to to, to realise that when Israel decided that their form of looking after civilians, because they are, are obliged to, to seek protection for civilians, was essentially to look at an evacuation, as in move them around, okay? So that's that was how Israel decided that their form of protecting the civilian population, their precaution was going to be what they called safe zones. Now, safe zones, of course, not only must be safe, free from bombardment, but legally and morally... they're only safe when there are sufficient resources for survival, that means food, water, medicines. Now I saw for myself, they are entirely absent, barely lip service is even paid for those. So you've got hundreds of thousands of people moving for the fourth and fifth time, usually with the trauma of having lost a loved one. They are moving from shelters to street corners, to empty fields, to broken buildings, where there is not a single toilet, where there is no water. So now the grave risk that we have, particularly in the last 24 hours, Katrina, is, is disease. that We are going to see the same horrendous numbers of children being killed from the bombardments. We will see the same number from disease on the ground because safe zones are simply not safe. There is nothing there to keep a child safe in terms of things like water sanitation protection. And unfortunately, as, as candid as this language is, I think the authorities calling these safe zones are well aware that they're not. It's calculating, it's cold, it's, it's callous, and it speaks to the utter disregard that's been shown towards children and civilians across Gaza.
0: When you were having these conversations with the kids and, and their parents, what kind of stories were they telling you? And, and do any of these kids have hope for their future, that this isn't the end of their story, that there is some hope that this won't be how the rest of their lives will play out?
1: I think hope is a, is a really important one. I certainly spoke to more than enough mums and dads who would literally say, James, I've, let's think about talking to a mum. My husband's been killed. My two daughters have been killed. I don't have the resources to provide food for my remaining child. My home has been destroyed. I don't have a job. All I have is hope that is not a unique story that is a story across the board i spoke to a colleague yesterday who said literally verbatim look james our our situation is just pure misery we're desperately looking for water and food my children are overwhelmed they're losing it i don't know if we'll make it through this please tell the world now for those people yeah they they are clinging on but they are just clinging on now it is that horrible horrible sight a child sees when they look in their parents' eyes and they realize their parents have lost control. And when a parent is aware that they now have lost the ability to protect their child, that is happening time, time and again. I saw that look in so many children, so many boys and girls who had amputations, a little 3-year-old boy Ahmed who, you know, sat lay there missing one leg with a football there. These children don't talk. I mean, I'm a dad. I've spent 20 years being able to, you know, get a child to to respond and to, you know, to to break the moment even if it is a very dark moment in a war zone or a refugee camp. These children who have suffered bombardments and lost limbs or are sitting there under the pain of third-degree burns, They're hearing bombs again. The pause was just a moment, Katrina. So they're hearing them again. They know what it means. So you've got such a level of such a level of trauma. Um, There was one little boy. Many kids stick in my mind. There was one particular boy, Omar. His when the family home was hit by a missile, his mother was killed. His father was killed and his twin brother was killed and yeah, he's a very engaging boy very clever boy and i would have conversations about him being clever and he would say yeah but my twin brother was more clever omar for long periods would close his eyes he would sort of just shut his eyes and ask his asked his aunt why and she just said he's just terrified of forgetting what his mum and dad look like mm. he's just so afraid so he just keeps closing his eyes because that's where he can still see them those stories are not unique they are everywhere in gaza There's sorrow and Sadness have just taken root in that place.
0: And a day in the life for a, a family, you know, like where are they sleeping? How y- you say there's there's no running water, but how are they getting any form of water or sustenance? What what sort of a typical day look like?
1: So so because so many people have had to flee from the north to the south, shelters in the south, and again so. Their day, firstly, they're on street corners. Imagine a middle-class suburban home in Australia and suddenly, you know, several blocks have now got seven, ten thousand 10,000 people on them and they put in anything they can, and they're sleeping there. And now it's raining, so now you've got that horrendous threat because this is now waterborne disease time. We're seeing diarrhoea rates of 100,000 children, for example, and that would be an underestimate. So they will then spend their day... Looking, flour is the, key, is the key source of food there, and that's wo- woefully inadequate. And looking for water, there are very few boreholes working. The desalination plants, which was the lifeline in Gaza, they're either destroyed or fuel has been denied to them. So families will spend time essentially looking for water. Middle class families, a family that two months ago was sitting at home, you know, having dinner, and a child was on a computer, and the parents were reading a book. That is now, that is now their existence absolute survival mode with a bombardment occurring. If there was no bombardments, this would be the highest level emergency the United Nations would classify, based on two thirds of people having had their homes damaged, based on 90% of the population being displaced, based on lethal lack of water and sanitation. It's all those things with a bombardment. And remembering within all this context, because the world seems to have forgotten there are still Israeli children somewhere. I imagine in a tunnel with armed men. I mean, the the terror, the fear of that, the torment of their parents. All these reasons speak to finding a way for a ceasefire. Only a ceasefire will enable aid to stop horrible disease. Only a ceasefire will stop these horrendous bombardments. And only a ceasefire would seem will get these Israeli children home and end that torment for their families.
0: James, what can we in Australia do, you know, individuals, what can we do, people who are listening to this, who, who just feel so powerless?
1: I think it's been very important for people to raise their voice. We saw in a General Assembly the other day that Australia had now shifted its vote and was voting clearly for a ceasefire. A ceasefire, people often ask me, okay, but if not a ceasefire, what? What? There is no other what, because a ceasefire again is not just to stop the bombardment. A ceasefire is the only thing to make anywhere safe so children don't die to a lack of water. So that's really clear that the nation, that people feel that ability to raise their voice and not be polarized, not be torn, you know, to be able to hold multiple thoughts at the same time and just to see a child as a child. And then, look, I worked for UNICEF, so I was on convoys to the north. I was on those trucks taking food, water, medicine. You know, so UNICEF remains, despite this being a war zone, a frontline responder. And you know, if people have a look on the website and feel, feel that's a place to give, then that kind of support goes on those trucks. And I've seen the people, the desperation of those people, when they are reached with you know, emergency medical supplies or simply bottled water.
0: Well, James, you're doing an amazing job and how you manage to hold all of those people's stories in your heart and, and still keep doing what you're doing and being a dad and, you know, going out in the world every day and talking to us, uh, like it's extraordinary. So thank you.
1: Oh, you're very kind. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Katrina. Good to connect.
0: That was James Elder from UNICEF. It is worth addressing a point of view that you'll hear from Israelis and their supporters who flagged concerns about focusing on civilian casualties in Gaza. And they say that when we do so, we're doing the work of Hamas and making it easier for Israel to be forced to back off Hamas. We are well aware that both Israeli and Palestinian children have been caught up in this conflict and there are casualties on both sides. Sadly, as James said, Israeli children are still being held hostage in Gaza. If you want to contribute to the humanitarian efforts of UNICEF, their website is unicef.org.au. Listener.